Lord, we just thank you for this day. We do thank you for the opportunity to come and study your word and help and guide it and lead us in what you want us to see and anoint this time special and guide us in your truth and your word. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, the book of Isaiah, just a little bit of about the book. It's written by Isaiah, surprisingly enough. <laughs> uh, and Isaiah was a prophet around about... 78, uh, 785, 800 B.C. to approximately 710 B.C. He was a prophet for over 40 years, approximately 40 years. Uh, he prophesied under the reigns of th four different kings, Uzziah, Jothram, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He is considered one of the great prophets of Israel and wrote a book that's one of the longest books in the Bible. It's 66 chapters. And these 66 chapters of Isaiah actually break down into two different parts. The first 39 are mostly laws and prophecies and warnings. And the other 27 are a lot of grace and messianic prophecies, which if you know your breakdown of the Bible, the Bible in the Old Testament is 39 uh, books, and the New Testament is 27 books. And so I don't know if they put the chapters in that way on purpose or not, but it's just kind of one of those neat little, neat little facts that the first two-thirds of Isaiah is pretty much Old Testament type stuff, and the last third of it is uh, Messianic, uh, which means uh, prophecies of Jesus. Uh, it's, it's the first book of, of the section of the Bible they call the major prophets. So the major prophets consist of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And the other 17, uh, other 12 prophets are called minor prophets, and they're not because they're unimportant prophets, it's because their books are small. Uh, the largest of the minor prophets, I think, is 12 chapters long. So it's, it's not that they are very unimportant uh, prophets, but just that they've got a small message, but they are powerful, packed messages in those, in those uh, books. Let's see, uh, getting, getting history here real quick. Uh, the breakdown of the book is in the first uh, one through six in the, of the chapters. It's, it's pretty much uh, Isaiah's vision, his call, uh, why he's writing the book. So it's pretty, he's got, actually has a pretty long introduction to his book, which we're going to find out when we get into this. Uh, seven through 12 are about exhortations and warnings. Uh, to deliver to the Jews. 13 to 23 are prophecies to the surrounding nations of Israel. That would include uh, Assyria and Babylon and Ethiopia and all the nations around, around about them. 24 through 27 is just prophecies concerning the miseries and warnings and exhortations to the people. And 28 to 31 are the woes of, of, on Ephraim and Jerusalem because they're trusting in alliances. They were not trusting in God. And then uh, the last uh, 32 through 35 is promises of a righteous king to come. And then 30 through 39 is the deliverance of Hezekiah. And remember, Hezekiah is the last king he uh, is a prophet to. And, and then it goes in verses 40 through 46 are warnings and prophecies of the Messianic rule. <laughs> so that's the outline of the book. And we're going to look at this. The kings that he ruled under 
because you probably all don't know these kings very well, so we're going to give you a little quick background, and we'll look into them as we go along. The first king is Uzziah, or sometimes in, written out as Aziah, A-Z-A-R-I-A-H. Uh, Uzziah reigned for 52 years. He's one of the long-reigning kings. He started reigning when he was only 16 years old. Huh? He started, well, he's not the youngest. He's not the youngest king that rules. The youngest one was, uh, I was going to say five. It was eight or five. He's really young. And he was one of the good kings. Uh, Uzziah is one of the good kings. He starts out good and ends up bad. He, fall, he falls from, from his position of being a good king. He, he does really well. Uh, as a king, he starts out with Zechariah as the prophet around him. And in 2 Chronicles 26, 18, he goes into the temple. He gets a little proud. He goes into the temple and decides that he's going to burn incense with the priests. And the priests are trying to block him, and he gets all puffed up about it. I'm king. I can do what I want. He reaches out for a censer, and he gets struck with leprosy. And they push him out of the, out of the temple real quick because no lepers are supposed to be in the temple. And from that point on, he lives in a separate house, and his son basically takes over as king of, Israel, of Judah. So he starts out really good. He's a good king. He's he, he, uh, following God. He's encouraging the worship of God. And then he ends up bad. And you know, it's a sad thing when people do not follow all the way through to the end of their days following God, and yet many examples of it in the scriptures. His son is Jothram, and Jothram is going to reign for 16 years. He reign, starts reigning at 25 years old, and he has Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and Micah all as prophets during his reign. And a lot of these prophets are all intertwined, especially when you get to the minor prophets, they're all intertwined at this point. And Jothram is one of the good kings, and Nothing really spectacular or, or negative about him. He's just one of the good kings. They follow God during, during his reign. Jotham gives birth to Ahaz. And Ahaz rules for 16 years. He starts reigning at about 20 years old. And he is a bad king. Nothing good is said about him. It starts out with Ahaz offering his sons to Moloch. And Moloch was one of the ancient gods of that day. And it, and we've talked about that. Moloch had arms that would be out. They'd put their children in the arms, and then they would roll them back into the, into the inside of the idol, which was on fire, and they'd burn their children alive to Moloch. Nice. Uh, not even dead children. They burned them alive. Uh, and Ahaz was a worshiper of Moloch. So you can see that he was not one of their better kings. He's, he's not one that uh, is a lot is said that's good. His son is Hezekiah, and Hezekiah is one of the best kings of Israel. He is going to start ruling at about 25 years old. He's going to reign for approximately 29 years. The first thing he does is cleanses the temple. And under his reign was one of those times when, before him, the temple had been turned into a junk collection. Now, whether it was literal junk collection or just as a storage, storage area for everything nobody wanted, but it's going to take them months to clean it out. That's how much he's the son of Ahaz. Yeah. In Judah, they have a succession of kings 
from David straight through. There's no, no break. They're always, they're always the son up until the very end when, when Babylon starts assigning kings, but he still, they still only assign sons of David. Uh, and now in Israel, it's a different story. They have all kinds of different dynasties up there. He reigned for about 29 years. And he starts out with cleansing the temple. They get the temple cleansed, and then he, res he restores the Passover. And it's one of the top five Passovers in, in recorded history. And they had so many people offering sacrifices and so few uh, priests that the Levites had to help them kill the, the Passover lambs. And he's, he's given them food and he's given them everything all, all kinds of things it's, it, the only one that it was even close to would have been Solomon's uh, Passover feast where it lasted for two days all right so Hezekiah is one of these good kings he sets things up he, he is developing and we look at this the, the word Isaiah means the salvation of Jehovah or Yahweh and this pretty much is the theme of his book his the book's theme is salvation and we go through it, and God's deliverance is put forward in it. Uh, out of all the Old Testament books, Isaiah is probably one of the ones that has the most grace picture in it. It's got Isaiah 53, which is a picture of Jesus dying and, and suffering for us. And it's got plenty of uh, verses about his, his uh, life and his coming birth. Isaiah is the one that tells us that he's going to be born of a virgin. So there's all kinds of things that Isaiah tells us, and it's a very powerful, uplifting book for an Old Testament book. Let's see, any, anything else in my mess of notes here? All right. That covers the history. <laughs> Try to give us a nice picture of where we're at when we get into these books so we can know what we're looking at and kind of the structure of it. All right, Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jathram, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O Israel, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, the donkey his master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, the seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, that have forsaken the Lord, they, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They are gone away backward. They should be stricken. Why should you be stricken anymore? Why you will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores you have not closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire in your land, strangers devoured in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughters of Zion, the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in the vineyard, as a lodge in the garden of, of cucumbers, as a besieged city, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have, have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. All right. So we have plenty there to talk about. Uh, starts out, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, and we don't really know who Amos is. Jewish 
historians tell us that Isaiah was of the descent of the king. They believe that he was a cousin to Uzziah. And uh, that is what their tradition tells us. And so that would explain why he had so much access to Uzziah and other kings. If he was related to them, he, he would have been able to get in pretty easy. But prophets usually had a way to get into the kings anyway. They were recognized as somebody that was important. And sometimes they just showed up. Uh, Elijah and Elisha in, is, in, the, in the Israel are going to do the same thing to their king, but they're not invited and they're not wanted when they go see that king. Um, but it says, in, you know, which he saw concerning, it's his visions concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and he names off these four kings. And his, his ministry is to Judah. And remember when we talk about that Israel after Solomon's reign, Israel splits into two, and Judah is the southern kingdom, and it's uh, Judah and Benjamin are the two tribes of the southern kingdom, and you'll hear it called Judah. Sometimes they'll refer to him as Israel, so you have to kind of look into context of it. Uh, Jerusalem, you know, several words, and ten of the kingdom uh, tribes, the northern kingdom, went broke away from. Uh, Solomon's son because of his pride and arrogance, which we'll talk about when we ever get, when we do that in 2 Samuel. And uh, they break away and they become the nation of Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. Even though Ephraim's a tribe, sometimes they're referred to the nation as Ephraim. And they are going to have problems. And the one thing about Israel is they never have a good king. All of their kings are idol worshipers. And God speaks to them, trying to call them back, try to call them back until he finally sends them into captivity with Assyria. And Judah is going to be around a lot longer until they go into captivity under Babylon. And they have good and bad kings vacillating back and forth. All right. Timeline for Judges. When Judges ends, we are going to see King Saul come along. And so where we're at here, around the 13th king, around 12, 13 kings beyond Saul. So we're, we're quite a ways away. We're, we're 300 years further, you know, three, 400 years further than where we are in the book of Judges. So long ways. Same problems, same problems, same, same issues, but quite a bit of distance between them. Yeah, that's an amazing thing that I find in the Bible. I mean. God repeats himself so many times because people keep doing the same things over and over again. And you know, it kind of should be a, a warning to us and also a comfort to us that there's nothing new under the sun. The things that we're facing are, are the same things that have always been going on. Politicians have been corrupt. They were corrupt back there. People were sinners back then. They're sinners there. They're worshiping idols. Now they're worshiping idols then. They're you know, some of them are following God. They were, some of them were following God then. You know, revivals happened and people fell back away. And everything is exactly the way it was. And God keeps repeating himself over and over again. And it really just shows the patience of God. And yet, some of what he's going in. I mean, because this is coming in right from the beginning of, of what's going on with the people. In verse 2 it says, Hear, O heaven, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and yet they have rebelled against me. And I love this. Isaiah is calling heaven and earth to bear testimony against Jerusalem and Judah. And 
God still does that to, to this day, you know, pay attention. Heavens and earth, pay attention. And these words both for hear literally mean the first one, hear, hear the heavens, hear and obey, and then the other one uh, for the earth, give ear, is to, to literally hearken with the intent of obeying. So both of them have the intent of obeying, even though they're different words. And God is always asking us to hear and obey. Too many times when we hear, uh, as James says, we're forgetful hearers. We forget what we hear and we don't apply what we learn. And this is when I say, you know, when I challenge people to read the Bible, if all you're doing is reading the Bible like you would any other novel or any other book on your shelf, you're really not getting all the benefit out of it. Now, it's probably better than reading any other book because it's going to get stuck in your brain and God says his word doesn't return void, but it's not helping you at the moment that you're reading it. It'll help somewhere down in, <laughs> down in the future. But God is saying, hear. Hear and obey. He says, I have nourished and brought up children. You know, and this is, he's made them great. He's fed them. He's encouraged them. He's brought them up. He's lifted them up. And they have rebelled against me. For me, this is a should be a comfort for any parent that's ever raised a child that's gone the wrong way. Okay? God says, I've raised up my children, and they have rebelled. And if God can raise up children that rebel, anybody can raise up children that can rebel. And this is, you know, and this is something I've taught many parents over the years, you know, because I struggled with this as my kids started getting older and I saw them doing things I really didn't want them doing and not following God. I'm going, God, what, what did I do wrong? Where did I, where did I mess up? And we as parents usually blame ourselves for all of the problems of our kids. And you know what? In some ways, we might deserve it. I mean, none of us are perfect parents, but God is the perfect parents and he still raised up kids that rebelled against him. So we need to keep this in mind that we could do everything right and our kids will still sometimes choose not to follow God. And we could do everything wrong and our kids could still choose to follow God. That happens as well with people. They do everything wrong with their kids and they choose to follow God for whatever reason. Uh, when I got saved, nobody in my family went, went to church when I got saved. I was the only one. Nobody woke me up in the morning to go to church. Nobody even encouraged me to go to church. Matter of fact, they would probably actively discourage me at times because it was, you know, a family event or a picnic or whatever, you know, we need to do these rather than have you go to church because they didn't care about church. And yet I got saved and then watched my family turn. You know, so even though things are wrong, you can, be, you can commit to God, and if you did everything right, you could still have children who don't follow God. And, you know, and, I, and I love this just to encouragement for parents. And I hope every parent would grab hold of this. God can raise up children. He trained them. He told them what to do. And they rebelled. Anybody can have that happen to them. Uh, then he goes, they have rebelled against me, which literally means that they have moved against him. And then he goes, the ox knows his owner and the donkey knows his master's crib, but Israel does not know my people do not consider. And if you've been around animals, any Animals tend to know where to go when, you know, where their owner is. I was at my uncle's one time, and he was, he was running a dairy farm, and the cattle were running all over the field. And, I'm going, and, I, go, and I don't know how old I was. I go, how do you get the cattle to come back to be milked? He goes, they'll come. He goes, when it's time for them to be milked, they will get over here and get milked. And sure enough, about evening time, I don't remember what time it was, there was a whole line of cattle 
coming coming to the coming to the barn, you know, in a line, just going where they belong. Uh, I've seen horses that all they got to do is give them a call, and they know their master's master's voice, and they'll come running to their running to their master for their treat or their brush or whatever it is that they're they're needing. And here God's saying, animals know who their owners are and respond, but Israel does not even understand that I'm their father and I'm their I'm their, their master. It says they don't know. They don't even consider. And this is, you know, very strong language. You know, Israel, you know, you're worse than an animal. <laughs> you don't even know. You don't know my voice. You don't know my heart for you. You don't know anything. And God is saying, what's wrong with Basically, what's wrong with you? He goes, the donkey will come, come get, get food in the, in the manger. The, the ox knows where to go. But you don't even consider me. And to me, sometimes when I read something like this, I think about all the different people who say they're a Christian but don't read their Bible, don't go to church, don't, don't acknowledge God in any way, shape, or form, and going, do you guys really know? You know and it's not for me to judge, but it's like, what's, what are you believing in if you're not, not following God? Yeah, what's feeding you? What, how, where are you getting your strength from? Who is your, your God in reality? And we see this so often, and it's heartbreaking. We see it in our families at times and when we look at family members who say they're Christians but don't open their Bibles, don't want to pray with you, don't want to talk about God. Talk to me about anything but God. And to me, if somebody's really a Christian, maybe they're not going to talk about God all the time. But if they never want to talk about God, who's their Lord, their master, their, the one they're, they're worshiping, there has to be something in there that's just not right. And this is what he's saying to them. Yeah. You know, Israel, even animals know better. And you don't know. You don't know who's providing you your food. Then he goes, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors that have forsaken the Lord and have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, they are gone away backward. And this awe is, you know, just an exclamation point. It said, O oh, nation, you know, O oh, sinful nation. The entire nation was sinful. Much of, much of the same could be used of our nation in America. O oh, sinful nation. And we're not anywhere near as old as Israel was at this point in time. But, you know, our country started on such a strong Christian foundation that it's really sad to see how far our country has drifted away from God. And as we've drifted away from God, how much sin abounds. And there's less and less light and salt to keep sin down. And the church is working on keeping them down, but we need a great revival for anything to happen. And there's been two great awakenings in America, great, great revivals in America. Will there be a third? I don't know. I'd like to think so. But at the same time, we're close to the end as far as I'm concerned. So on one side, I want a, want a revival. On the other side, I don't. But I've got a grandson I'd like to live in a, in a country that is turning to God. But, uh, you know, and he says, Oh, sinful nation, laden with iniquity, laden, heavily loaded with iniquity. And it's really a very sad statement that he's making. And I'm not sure exactly when in the, the line of these prophets he's writing this introduction. Uh, it could be in the middle of 
of uh, Ahaz's reign, which was an awful reign where sin is really abounding. Uh, doesn't sound like he's writing it when Hezekiah is, is, is reigning. To me, it sounds like it could be written now. Oh, yeah, it could be written now. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's just like our, our, this could be written about our nation, oh, sinful nation. Uh, and it could be right at the end of his life. It's, he reigned also under Manasseh. And Manasseh is the one that uh, history says executed uh, Isaiah. And he was put into a log and sawn in half. And Manasseh was one of the most evil kings of, of Judah. And really sad how Manasseh came about because Hezekiah at the end of his life he was really sick. Uh, uh, the prophet came in and said, prepare, prepare yourself, you're going to die. And God says, put your house in order. And he prays to God and asks for healing. And God listens to him. And out of that time, after that time, he gives birth to Manasseh. If he had died, Manasseh would never have reigned in Judah. But because God listened to his prayer, Manasseh was born and Manasseh, the wickedest king of Israel, is going to reign, or of, of Judah, is going to reign. And he reigns for a long time. Did Hezekiah have other kids? Oh, yeah. Oh, probably kill. Who knows? Who knows what? I don't, I don't think I remember the political intrigue. I ne never even considered. I knew he had other sons, but I never really considered the political intrigue. But Manasseh was evil, so it would not, would not be beyond realm of thought that he would have killed all of his brothers. Uh, he was evil, and he's going to be the worst thing that happens to Judah, and he's there because God answered a prayer of Hezekiah. And, you know, there's, there, there's some ideas where people say, and, you know, uh, there's even a song, you know, country song, thank God for unanswered prayers, you know, and you know, sometimes there's prayers that we wish that God did not answer. Hezekiah's prayer was one that, we, that Israel probably wished that he had not answered because they end up with an evil king that takes them away from God. But uh, it says, you know, you're laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers. <laughs> he doesn't have much good to say about them right now. And this is why it might, this prologue may be written, you know, tacked in the front at the time of Manasseh. Uh, they're getting really bad. Manasseh's not looking, to, looking at him, not listening to him. And he goes, oh, you're just a bunch of seed of evildoers, which is quite a description because we're all seed of evildoers because we're all sinners. But in this case, he's being stronger than just being sinners. Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. You know, yeah. And to get God to the point of anger is a scary point. And during Manasseh's days, they're going to be under a lot of judgment. A lot of trials, a lot of tribulation. Even under Ahaz's day, they're under a lot of pressure and judgment. And, you know, this is not a very flattering picture of, Israel, of, of Judah right here. Uh, laden, laden with iniquity, seed of evildoers, corruptors, forsaking God. And you have provoked God unto anger. And in one sense, that's an easy thing to do because God is so holy and righteous, especially with his children. He's going to be able to get angry a lot faster because we should know better. Even as Christians, we should know better. We're going to get disciplined a lot faster than anybody else in the world because we are his children and he doesn't want us living that way. And a lot of times I hear, well, how come that person isn't getting in trouble for it? Well, they don't know God. <laughs> they're a sinner and they're not one of his children. You're going to be punished 
for what you do. Because you're his child, he wants you to live separated life. You know, we are to live a life that's separated from the world, which means we don't do things the way the world does. We think different, we act different, we be, you know, all that we do should be different from the way the world does. And the world will tell a lie if it suits their needs. Christians should be honest. Christians should be good workers. The, the world is going to get away with, try to get away with as much as they can. Uh, the, God tells us that we're to submit to authority. The world's only going to submit when, it's to, you know, when, when they think it's to their advantage. Uh, all these things will fit in. When God gives us a truth, the world gives us a whole bunch of lies, which is what we're doing in the Truth Project. You know, looking at Satan's lies against God's truth. How do you get to heaven? Well, God tells us that we can't get to heaven except through Jesus Christ and his, his sacrifice for us. And what's Satan tell? Ah, just do more good than bad. And every religion, if you study the religions close enough, basically say do more good than bad and you're going to make it to heaven. The sad thing is there are a lot of Christian churches that teach the same thing, even though it's not biblical. God says the way that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. All right? And no works, nothing I do is going to get me into heaven. And again, we've talked about this. Every time I bring this up, I bring it up. You know, there's consequences for bad deeds. We're going to pay for bad deeds, but, it, but the good deeds do not get us into heaven. They just make us not have bad consequences. And that the world will tell us, ah, just be good. Do more good than bad. Or the other extreme is that there is no heaven or hell anyway, so don't worry about it. Or another one is all people go to heaven. Doesn't matter how bad or good they are, God's just so loving, all people are going to go to heaven. And those are your three examples of what the world lies are against, about, against Jesus' being the, what, the only way. Do more good than bad, all people go to heaven, which is really dumb if you think that went through. That's saying that somebody like Hitler or Bin Laden, you know, killing lots of people, go to heaven. Because God is so forgiving, he's going to forgive them of it. Well, God is willing to forgive them if they come through Jesus. But not just to say, oh, well, I just love you so much. Go just do whatever you want, and I'm going to bring you into heaven when you die. That doesn't work out. It does not even logical. And then the other ones think there's no hell, though God will annihilate them. Because God is so loving, he would never punish somebody for eternity, but he created eternal beings. You know, from birth, we are eternal forward, not eternal past, but we're eternal forward. Everybody that's born is going to live forever into the future. Now, where we live is determined by how we live this life, either heaven with Jesus or in hell without Jesus. One or the other, one or the other. And this is the important thing. We're going, we all have an eternal existence, and hell is an eternal death. And it's a really awful place because it's going to be your conscience is going to burn. You're going to know why you're there. You're going to know you're, you're there because you rejected Jesus. You're going to know that you're there because you deserve it. And it'll be an awful place where it's described as a lake of fire, which burns and never, never consumes. It talks about the worm that turns our conscience that will bother us for all of eternity. And people remember every time they had an opportunity to receive Jesus and rejected him, they're going to know that they're there because they basically asked for it by their rejection of Jesus. And it's going to be a miserable place. And it lasts for eternity. What do you think we are before we're born? What do you think we are before? We don't exist before we're born. God creates us at that moment, at conception. So, so God, 
creates each of us specifically when we're conceived. But we didn't go like, okay, it's your turn. Doesn't have a whole nursery up in heaven of spirit, spirit babies. To, there's a number of false religions that have that kind of idea. And reincarnation has that kind of idea because you die and you get to start all over again as some other spiritual, you know, have your spirit dumped into some other living creature. I guess I always thought that we were something before we were, became human, but I didn't put words to it or thought to it. God creates us when we are born, and that's why Jeremiah says, I knew you from your mother's womb, and I knew you before you were knitted together. Uh, Ezekiel says the same thing. Many of the many of the books talk about how God knew us. Uh, and then people, where this comes from, where God says, I knew you before you were born, and that is only because God is omnipresent and he knows all of time before it even happens. We've talked about this several times. Before he even created the heavens and the earth, he already knew us. He already knew that he was going to, and he knew all of them. He knew everybody. He knew all the decisions everybody was going to make. He knew everything that was going to happen. We can't comprehend it. We just can't comprehend it. Okay? We can't even comprehend him knowing all of time at the same time, much less everything on both sides of it. From Adam and Eve to now, that is like... Well, not just to now. Yeah, yeah, From Adam and Eve all the way to the end of the Millennial Kingdom, he knows all of that, and he knew it all before he even created the earth. It boggles my mind that, that he knows this as our future being, but he doesn't create us until we can see it. Okay. And then he probably, and so he would know who's really going to be saved and who isn't. Oh, yeah, definitely, yes. Yeah. Yes. He knows all of that. He knows who's going to serve him. He knows every decision we're going to make and the consequences that it's going to have to cause, good or bad consequences. And he knew that, and again, we go back to he knew it before he framed the world. Because Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world for us. That's why sometimes I wish he would take his nap before you do anything else. That Any more mistakes? Yeah. You know, yeah. God, I'm all confessed up. I'm doing good. Just yeah. take me now. Take me while I'm doing good things, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it is mind-boggling. It's hard to even comprehend. You know, and I've said it over and over again. Why would God even create man knowing that we were going to sin? And it was not something that surprised him. He knew that it was going to happen. Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, before he even laid the foundation of the world and the universe, he knew that we were going to sin. And it's just a mind-boggling thing. But you know, it's also good that our God knows all that things, all those, because otherwise he'd just be a, a very strong, powerful human being. And the very fact that he is above and beyond us in all aspects, including his knowledge of, of us before time exists, puts us into a place where how do, we, how do we comprehend that? How do we comprehend that he knows the beginning from the end before he even created anything? God knows everything from the beginning to the end before it ever started. That takes you back to the question, why would we let people like mass killers or, or serial killers Part of it is because he gives us free will. And the answer to that one is always a very simple answer, actually, is how much free will do you want God to take away? How much bad do you want him to take away from people? But if he knows even before they're born, what they're going to Oh, he could have stopped it, yes. But he also knows the final side of this. If 
uh, Hitler hadn't murdered th th three million Jews, would the English have provided them a homeland at the end of World War II to return, return to as a nation? Probably not. There would have been no big reason to. And that's kind of a sad thing. It took three million Jews to die for somebody to move to give them a homeland. Could God have done it another way? Yes, he could have, he could have just done it just like he did before. Okay, Jews, get, get yourselves together. We're marching you into the promised land. But he still killed people there. Too. Yeah, yeah, so people died there. You know. um, so we look at this and say, God, what is it that you're doing? We don't know. It goes back to the uh, phrase that I put up many, about a year or two ago, I guess. God's perfect will is what I would choose if I knew everything. That's true because you know I'm going to add is thinking that what a serial killer does is a bad thing. From looking at it from this side, it is, but looking at it from the other side. What happens? Not. What happens 20 years down the road with somebody who was motivated because of that to do some great, great thing? We look at somebody like Johnny Eric Satata, who, a 17-year-old, broke her neck, and miserable thing. It's terrible. She's had a very hard life, but yet out of that life. She has ministered to the population around the world that are in wheelchairs. You know, would she have done that if she had not broken her neck? Probably not. She wouldn't have, she wouldn't have had compassion for them. Would somebody else have done it? Maybe. <laughs> but, but God turns what happened to her into something good. And I'm not going to say it was good that she broke her neck. No way would I ever say that was good. And all the pain and suffering she's had since that has not been good. But she has made much good come from it. God does things, and from this side of, of time, it looks, everything looks bad. Oftentimes, when those things happen, it motivates people to do something that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And we look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, hundreds and hundreds of Christians being killed during those, probably even thousands, and yet we watch how God used their deaths to motivate people to do other things for the, for the kingdom or to come, to come to Christ. From this side of the world, it looks very interesting. And many people have talked about it as a tapestry or embroidery, looking at it from the wrong side of it. And if you've ever done embroidery or you've looked at embroidery and you've got all those knots and, and a jumble of mess and then you flip it over, and if the person's good at it, <laughs> you have this beautiful picture and it takes all those knots and mess underneath it to produce the picture. And a lot of people have used that, that when we see this world and life from heaven, when it's all complete, God has created a masterpiece, but on the backside of it is all the knots and the chaos and the, not, and the, and the mess. But when you get it over on the other side, it's like, oh, okay, I'm that little dark line in there that brings out the you know, my life was miserable and hard, but look, I brought out the, the texture of this, of that portion of the picture. You know, and again, it's not to belittle what we go through and the hard times and the bad things, but God has a plan. And once we get to the other side, it'll be, oh, that's my little stretch of life. Oh, that's why you did that, God. You needed, you needed that little dark mark in, the, in your tapestry to draw something out, to cause a shadow. Uh, and again, it's how do we look at it? We're looking at it from a, from a finite point of view. We're not seeing what's going to happen down the road. And maybe it's three or four generations down the road that what I've set in motion 
impacts. Yeah, we can't see the other side of the tapestry until, until we get to the other side. <laughs> We're seeing the knots and the mess and the jumble, and, and we're not seeing what happens. And many times you've got things that happen three or four generations later that somebody put into place. And it's kind of fun taking the, somebody like Billy Graham, and you go back through the different uh, evangelists that had impact in his life, and there's a long line from Billy Graham all the way back to these, these evangelists that have, that have impacted each other over the years. And it's an amazing story to read. And you know, again, if it wasn't for that one little pe person at the very beginning, and each evangelist there, thereafter, would we have had a Billy Graham? Who has Billy Graham touched that's going to be the next one that takes his place? We don't know. Might be a son, might not be a son. His son's going to take over Billy Graham's missionary mission, but that doesn't mean he's going to be the next great evangelist on the horizon in the long line. So again, when we look at this, that people have gone astray, they've estranged themselves from God, God knew it. And he had a plan. Or not had a plan, has a plan. <laughs> okay? And when we get to heaven and we look back upon this masterpiece of this world that he's created, it's going to amaze us. And especially when he shows us our little tiny piece. You know, how big will our piece in that tapestry be? Not very big for most of us. Most of us don't live long enough to make an impact, great impact. But how, how, does it, how does it tie together with everything else? Now, that's going to be the beauty of it, is how it ties together. And we'll look and say, well, there it is. If it wasn't for that piece, there would be something missing from this tapestry. Verse 5, why should you be stricken anymore? Why you will revolt more and more? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. Okay, this is not a very pretty picture of Israel. They are bad. And he says, why, why, why do you need to be beat more? And the idea of being beat is in discipline. You're being taken out to the woodshed. Why do I have to keep bringing you out to the woodshed? Uh, and you just keep revolting more and more. And you know, there are children that when they're being disciplined, it drives them to deeper uh, problems. Not many, because God says that is we're supposed to train up our children. We're supposed to discipline, and he disciplines us. Most people will, will bend their will to discipline. But there are a handful of people that are just very strong-willed, and they will not bend to discipline. And we've all probably met one or two of them in our lifetime that just, you know, you tell them no, they're going to say yes. You tell them the sky is blue, they're going to tell you it's green. You tell them the, uh, you know, that it's raining outside, and they're going to tell you, no, it's not. You know, it's, uh, it's sunny outside, no, it, you know, there's clouds. It's, you know, you know, they've always got to argue with everything. And this is what he's saying about his people. You, know, you guys are so bad that it's, I'm wasting my time even disciplining you. That's pretty bad. That is pretty bad when you get to that place. He says the whole head is sick, and that's your thinking capacities. And your heart, your center of your emotions, is faint. He's talking about a whole nation. He's talking about the whole nation. Yeah. Now, granted, it is not the whole nation. He's going to say later on there's a, a remnant in the nation. There's always a remnant. But again, it's very much like our nation, to, our own nation. For the most part, our nation is sick. They think wrong, they act wrong, and they're spiritually and emotionally falling away from God. Now, there's a handful of Christians out there still, and we're praying for revival. We're doing, you know, witnessing, trying to change things. 
But here is the same thing. The nation of Israel is in that place. They're at the precipice where they're going to ready get, either fall away from God or repent. Our nation is at that place where we're going to fall away from God into total depravity and be judged, just as Israel was judged at the end of their time, or repent. And God works with it. And there's no guarantee for our country that we'll ever come back because Israel is God's people. And he kept saying, I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to bring you back, but there's no guarantee for our country that we will ever come back if we fall off, off the edge and, and totally away from God. And he puts us under judgment. And we've seen it many times over the years of uh, millennia of nations that rise up and nations that fall down and are no more. There's many countries that don't exist anymore. There were powerhouses in the old days. Now that land still lists, exists, but they're under different countries now. And this is what God is saying to them. You are so bad. Your whole head, all, your whole thought process, is your, your emotions are all sick. And that is pretty bad. And then, if that wasn't enough, in verse 6, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. All right, it's bad enough that the head is sick, the heart is faint, he goes, and from your foot to your head, there's nothing good in there. Okay, so now he's moving out of the uh, emotional part of it and, and thought processes into the body itself being sick. And in, you know, this description is not good. It says it's full of wounds, all kinds of cuts, and bruises, and putrefying sores. And putrefying sores are those that ooze and, and run. And he's talking about pretty bad. You know, he's talking about somebody who's been beat up really bad and not just short term. You don't get putrefying sores overnight. This is something that takes a long time when they get infected. And you know, this is not a pretty description of the people. He goes, you guys are, be are basically beat up. You're, you've got cuts, you've got bruises, and you're not even, and the cuts that you have are, are running. And he goes, you have not <coughs> closed them up. You haven't even put a Band-Aid on them. You haven't bound them up. You haven't stitched them up. And you haven't mollified them with ointment or put things on it to soften them so that they can heal. This is a picture of somebody who is so badly beaten and they have not even taken care of the cuts. Now, that is something that's unfathomable to us because we would always try to do something unless we were so beat up we could not. And that's that picture. This is a picture of somebody who's basically left for dead. And nobody is treating the, treating the wounds. And you know, this is a bad description. I can't even, I have a hard time picturing what this would look like. I can picture somebody being beat up in, in a wreck or something, but to have sores that are running that have not been stitched up or, or cut up and, they've been, and to the point of they're running with pus. I've seen people like that, usually drug addicts. But you're right, there, there are people like that. We see, come to think of it, we see the pictures of the, the meth when they're showing it with them, they pick their sores and, and, and never look good because of what they've done. So yeah, I guess that, that is. It, it's definitely getting to a place where somebody doesn't care about themselves. They're, they're so, so focused on getting more drugs that they don't care about what's happening to their body. And that's basically what he said. There's no soundness in your head. There's no, and you're faint in your heart. You really aren't even thinking about anything of any value. And you know, this is a bad state. 
They're in a bad state. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. All right, if it wasn't bad enough that you're having trouble, your land's in trouble. <laughs> you're being overrun. And this is why I think the only time I could even see this happening is during uh, Manasseh's reign when things are starting to turn. Because Manasseh has a lot of bad problems happening in the country. Uh, Hezekiah has some problems with, with it, but God delivers them, but they have some problems with it. But it, you know, it says, your country is desolate, empty, burning. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. This kind of sounds like Gideon's day. Yeah, the Midianites, <laughs> the Midianites yeah. coming in and stripping out everything and, yeah. and burning what was left. Again, repetition. Yeah. Repetition over and over again. The same things keep happening. And it says, your land is being destroyed. It is overrun by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in the vineyard, as a lodge in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. What is this about? Israel, you've been reduced. You're supposed to be the owner of all of the promised land. And you've been reduced to just a tiny cottage of remnant. Just a few of you are following me. The rest are besieged and beleaguered. He goes, sad state of affairs. You've lost what is supposed to be yours, and you have just a tiny little place to stay. Everything daughter, is gone. The of Israel. Israel. Right. Remember, Zion is another is a poetic name for Jerusalem. And so when it talks about the daughters of Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion, the children of Israel. And then, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom. And we should have been likened to Gomorrah. He says, basically saying God was gracious to us. He left some people here. Otherwise, he would have destroyed the entire nation. Now, why did he leave the remnant? Because he promised Abraham he would. And this remnant is a little bigger than, <laughs> than he's making it sound. But there's only a remnant following after God. And they're the ones that are going to keep praying for their country. They're the ones going to be praying for their nation. The thing that keeps America from completely falling is the strong Christians that are praying for our country and praying for revival and, and putting salt out there. And when the world comes up with some really dumb ideas of what they want to do that leads into sin, the church stands up against it. And we're, falling, we're failing in many areas, but can you imagine how much sin would be running rampant if we weren't here to slow it down? You know, and there's a lot of people that criticize the church. You're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. But it is really amazing that, that we do have an impact. It's taken a lot longer for some of these sins to become mainstream because Christians have fought for so long, for many decades now, to keep it from happening. And we are losing the battle, but that's just because men are sinful. And the further we get away from God, the worse it's going to get. We've taken God out of our schools, so we can't, you know, we can't post the Ten Commandments because some kid might obey them. And that's actually what's said. Somebody might be encouraged to obey them against, their, against whatever their religion said. Yeah. And so it's, it's a crazy world that we live in. It's a crazy world that we live in that we can't post the Ten Commandments because somebody might obey them and, and live a good life. We can't bring God into it because somebody might get to know God and change their life. Yeah, that was in that God's not dead. Yeah. Two, but teacher just answered the question. Uh-huh. And if you bring God up at all, in our, in our current world, you're going to get criticized. 
and to the point of maybe losing a job or, or losing a business because you're willing to say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to follow God. And it's going to get worse. Unless we have a great revival, it's going to get worse. And, but this is what he said. Isaiah says, except that the Lord had kept a remnant, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We wouldn't exist. And like I said, for our country, there is no guarantee that we won't become like Sodom and Gomorrah and be totally wiped out as a nation. Well, Christians will still be, yeah. be his. We may have to pay with our lives, but we'll still be his. But this nation quite likely may not exist in much longer. And it's scary when you, when you think about some of the things that, that are believed by our, our up-and-coming generation that's going to be ruling this country. They don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in a free market enterprise. They don't believe in right and wrong. There's so many things that the Bible teaches that they don't believe in that in a very short period of time, unless God does a miracle, we won't recognize our country at all. And that's not being a prophet. That's just looking at the facts. Uh, it is coming around the corner that we may not recognize our country as the country that we started in, that got started because of how sin is running rampant and how people do not believe in anything that the older generation believes in. And we see it in a big way on our news all the time. Uh, the fact that socialism is so popular as opposed to uh, capitalism. Uh, we've got uh, you know, all kinds of things saying that you know, we've got to change the Constitution all the time because they don't like certain provisions in the Constitution that our founding fathers knew were there for keep us free. And they, almost everything they want to, that were put there to keep us free is exactly the things that people want to get rid of. Now, they want to limit free speech. They want to re limit the freedom of religion. They want to take away weapons and all the other things that are there to keep us free and they want to get rid of because it's not the speech they want to hear. It's not the, the religion they want to hear about. It's not, you know, the gun, guns go around shooting people. You know, it's all these different things that they, they go out and, and believe. And yet, it'll fundamentally change us to the place where we won't recognize our country anymore and there won't be any freedom. And then we'll be a church underground trying to reach, reach out for God because we will be so much hated by the world and we're already hated by the world and it's getting worse. And there's gonna be a time when just for, to proclaim yourself a Christian can end up putting you in jail or worse. And it's just around the corner. It's not far away. And we need to pray. We need to pray so that God will keep a remnant in this country, and there's always been a remnant. All through the Middle Ages, there was a remnant of Christian believers that actually believed in, in God, opposed to the Catholic Church with all of its headed the wrong direction stuff that they were doing in the Middle Ages. The further they got away from Bible, the more the remnant was existing. And we see this over and over. God will always have a remnant to stand up for him and follow him. Because that's what he's going to have. He's always going to be there until he takes us all home. And even then, in the, in, in the book of Revelation, he takes the church out, and there's still a remnant that preaches the gospel. He, he specially anoints 144,000 Jews and many others probably to give the gospel message. So even in that point when sin is running rampant and Satan is directly running, running everything, there's still a remnant preaching the gospel and lifting God up. And they got to pay for it with their lives. It's going to be tough in that period of time. 
So we look at that, that Isaiah is saying, and this is where he's at, and we're going to stop here because it is that time. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to go with us as we go about your business. Help us to see what you would have us to see, and help us, Lord, to pray for our country. Help us to share the gospel and for, with others, and Lord, that we may just possibly see a revival and where you're lifted up amongst this nation and that we see you returned. And I say our nation returned back to righteousness. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.